only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. It's funny because it's a Thursday night that kind of feels like a Friday because track activity getting underway tomorrow for the double dip weekend, if you will, really triple dip if you consider the Xfinity cars as well. But Indy cars, stock cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the road course and we are on the eve of it now. That is because tomorrow everything gets underway in terms of practice and qualifying, for that matter, for the IndyCar side of things. As a matter of fact, before we welcome in Mike Thompson, who, by the way, is the hero of the night. More on that coming up in just a second. But tomorrow's schedule will be 8.30. The gates are open up. Then from 9.30 until 11 o'clock, the IndyCars will take to the road course for practice number one. You can hear that, by the way on IndyCar Radio with Sirius XM. It will also be viewed on Peacock. Then from 1 until 2.15, qualifying for the Gallagher Grand Prix out at Indianapolis. That is for IndyCar. Then it is practice for Xfinity from 3 until 3.35. And qualifications for the Xfinity cars will be from 3.35 until 4.30. That is the schedule for tomorrow my name is jake query good evening to you this is beyond the bricks josh bolnick's in with us tonight mike thompson is the hero of the night because mike admittedly now i will go ahead and just offer this peek behind the curtain i don't know if i divulged this to you or not but i've made mention of it i apologize if it is repetitive but i am in the middle of a summer session to finish my college degree And thank you, by the way, to the Indiana Commission for Higher Education and making that possible for me to go back and finish what I did not complete at Indiana University some 30 years ago or 25 years ago. So I'm taking the classes for it, and we're headed down the home stretch here. And I'm basically in turn four for the semester and was for the second day in a row at the library for about six hours. And so you texted me and said, what do you want to do on tonight's Beyond the Bricks? And I basically said, brother, man, I am leaning on you. And you... Last night we talked about your background in terms of working in television and radio as a producer and whatnot. Uh, you just hit it right out of the park, and I appreciate it. Oh well, I I appreciate the kind words at the top, and and I didn't know. I, I thought I'd say, you know what? I thought let, let me just put a full show together and put a rundown like I used to do in radio and television, and just send it on in. So I'm glad I'm glad you appreciated that. Look, a lot of people don't know how busy you really are with all the different things you do. And so when you sent that note this morning and said, hey, come up with something, I was working on it this afternoon. And I was thinking, well, come up with a show. So here, here we are. So we've got, a, we've got a pretty good show, actually, I think, tonight. Well, you came up with a good one, and that is talking about some of the legendary names that we know and think of. And certainly these are legendary names that won in every form of motorsports. But some of them, perhaps depending on your vantage point, solidified their name in the Indianapolis 500. Some of them, depending on your vantage point, made their name at the Indianapolis 500. Uh, And some of them are, are those that simply maybe some didn't realize also ran cup races. Some of them, some may say, yeah, I know them most for cups. So it's an interesting mix in terms of, I think, Mike, one of the things that makes this weekend interesting 
This show is about the people and the personalities beyond just drivers or the stories of how it came to be that they ended up in race cars. But for this particular weekend where you have the marriage of stock cars and Indy cars both on the same venue, at the same venue at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, sure, they're not double dipping on the oval together. But in terms of the crossbreed between NASCAR and IndyCar this weekend, sure, it is a relatively new event at IMS, but for the drivers, it is not. And some of the biggest names in the sports history have indeed sat in both cars. Oh, absolutely. When we were actually thinking the other night about different people who uh, have driven in a Formula One race and a NASCAR race uh, because of of what's happening out at the the Brickyard this weekend. And so, you know, it's just it's just kind of an interesting mix of drivers. And you think of all the legendary names that have done, you know, both an IndyCar race and a NASCAR race. And there's some people that you might be surprised by. And then when you start thinking about people who have done a Formula One race and a NASCAR race, there are some people that really, uh, when we started rattling off the names on Twitter the other day, people were a little surprised. I mean, Pedro Rodriguez drove in NASCAR cup races, and you might be surprised by that. Um, you know, David Hobbs drove in the Daytona 500 and people may not remember that. And, and so there's, there's a number of different drivers who, who have driven in at least, you know, at least one offs in, uh, you know, a cup race and also drove in formula one. And, and you're right. I mean, that's what I think is interesting about our sport is the fact that, uh, you know, you have these crossovers. And among those, and of course, this is no surprise. I have always felt that the most versatilely accomplished driver in the history of motorsport is Mario Andretti. Mario Andretti, of course, we know the story well. We've talked a lot about it in the month of May. That Mario Andretti and his brother Aldo began racing before really his parents even knew that he was running race cars. His father, speaking a broken English, working at his factory in or his blue-collar job in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and guys coming up and high-fiving him on Mondays, and he, his father thought it was because his English was improving, and he didn't realize that it's actually because his co-workers were going and seeing his two sons running races and winning races before they were the age of 18, before their father even knew that that's what they were doing. His brother Aldo was critically injured in a crash. That continued his father's kind of lukewarm nature towards Mario's racing career, but we know what happened in form of Mario Andretti becoming by the the reality is this, Mike. By the mid-1960s, really the early 1960s, I guess, 1963-64, all of a sudden, Mario Andretti's running in USAC, and really from the time, 1964 in particular, but 1965 when it really took off, and then 1966, he just starts winning races all over the place. He was a duck to water any car that he got into. Oh, he was a duck to water and everything he got into. I mean, when he's driving midgets, when he's driving even stock cars when they started back in Nazareth. I mean, uh, you put Mario Andretti behind the wheel, he could win in anything. Absolutely. And Mario Andretti made his first Daytona 500 attempt, and he qualified, ran the race in 1966. He did not have a lot of NASCAR experience, as a matter of fact, when he showed up for the Daytona 500 in 1967. As a matter of fact, in terms of a stock car, he had made – Three starts in 1966, including both races at Daytona. Then he comes back in 1967 and starts the Daytona 500 fifth. And lo and behold, Mario Andretti goes on to win the 1967 Daytona 500. And here is how it sounded. 
And the caution flag is out right now. White, white flag. And the caution and white are out together. This is the last lap. The caution out to all intents and purposes. That's the way it'll end up with Mario Andretti the winner. His share of the Speedway purse is $22,500, and he will also get a sizable amount in lap money and in uh, accessory monies as well. That was unfortunate, naturally, for number 40, Jerry Grant of uh, the West Coast. Jerry, quite a sports car driver in his own right, and now taking to the, uh, the stocks for some of the large purses that they offered. Here comes number 42, Tiny Lund, in. So to all intents and purposes, the race is over, and we'll be going down. And yes, here comes the checker now, uh, just as a uh, uh, proper way to conclude a race, although with the white and caution out at the same time. There could have been no passing, so the race was actually concluded one lap early, but it'll go for the full distance. And you know something? Uh, James Hilton from Inman, South Carolina, the rookie of the year for NASCAR, second place man, by the way, in the NASCAR championship, will be running in third spot. That's a, a mighty good jump for a little fella. I'll yes, yes, and uh, Fred, as you know, of course, he, up to last year, had been mechanic for some of the top cars, but never had one himself, and uh, he's done a great job. Right, he and uh, oh, about two other men are the entire crew. That's right, that's right. And as if you couldn't tell by the fact that he was referred to as just a little fellow, uh, Mario Andretti, reality is, Mike, he was great in that 1967 Daytona 500 win, obviously, but that's not to say necessarily that he was greeted in Daytona with open arms. That's correct. First, I want to go back real quick. With all due respect for that call, and that's something that I could not do. I, I cannot do play-by-play like you do, Jake, and some of the greats, but uh, that particular call is certainly not Sid Collins, and it's certainly not Mark Jaynes. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we've got Mario Andretti about to win the Daytona 500, and it's like, yeah, and there's the checker, and here's some other stuff, and 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 that's it, I guess, and let's move on to the next topic. But uh, interestingly enough, by the way, did you hear Freddie Agabation was doing color for that race, which I think was kind of interesting as well. Freddie Agabation did color commentary on the uh, that broadcast in 1967 of that of the Daytona 500. But to your point, um, Mario Andretti, when he went down there, um, they weren't really going to give him the best stuff. And when I got a chance to talk to him about that, I asked him, I said, hey, I, you know, I heard a rumor that, you know, they – they really weren't giving you the best engines and the best stuff. And he gave me a great answer about, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, look, he wasn't the lead driver on the team and he was not going to get the best stuff from his team. Here is Mario Andretti reflecting on that 1967 Daytona 500 victory. Well, in all fairness to them, you know, I uh, I was fairly new. I mean, I had driven Daytona the year before for, for Smokey Eunuch, you know, in Cheval, but uh, and <clears throat> my only other experience was uh, testing, uh, you know, the Le Mans cars, you know, the, for Ford. We used to do a lot of testing, so you know, I had pretty good feel of the banks, but uh, I didn't have much good much feel of about the drafting, you know. So there was a lot of things that I had to learn. And um, and again, so uh, Ford was, uh, they were kind enough, you know, to really put me with uh, their 
factory team with Harmon and Moody. And the guy was there was the golden boy of uh, NASCAR at the time, which was Freddie Lorenzen, you know. So um, when things were, you know, in practice and so forth, you know, he was getting the good stuff, no question. And uh, and somehow uh, I know that I was down in the revs and I, I was asking questions. Nobody was giving me answers until actually it was Donnie Allison who actually says, you know, for the gear you're pulling, you should be running this 7,200. I said, well, I'm only down for 400 revs on the straightaway. So I uh, qualifying, a single qualifying, I had to qualify. I qualified with a really a shallow spoiler in the back and uh, – and then I was being told, man, he said, you're going to have a problem in the race because you got to race with it, you know. And uh, I said, well, I, you know, I'm not getting the rest. Then finally, you know, after, you know, complaining and so forth, I, I got a proper engine for the qualifiers for the, in those days were 100 milers, you know, now they're 125s. So they can make at least a stop. In those days, they used to cheat, try to, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to just make 100 mile without, without, stopping and uh, anyway uh, and I was flying you know in the 100 milers and and I was I led I think most of most of the way and, but I had to stop so uh, I didn't win that but uh, but I uh, in the race uh, though I, 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 I the car was loose but it was a manageable type of loose you know I was lucky that uh, uh, I had a certain degree of balance uh, mechanically in the car and that helped me get, you know, because to drive 500 miles with a loose car, I mean, it's uh, it's not a, you know, something that you really want to do if you really don't have to. But uh, but the car, the back end felt, you know, uh, like I had some control of it. So, but the only thing is that uh, I had to lead. You know, following and drafting, man, that was all over the place. You know, so uh, I just I went for the lead early, and that's why you know I led uh, you know over half the race. You know, throughout, and uh, I had great battles. You know, with uh, Richard and uh, Pearson, he and I probably had the longest battle. You know, uh, going on, and 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 again, but um, uh, they they sort of uh, they figure well, you know. Because a lot of guys, you know, trying to save fuel, you know, they try to draft uh, along the race. They said, man, he's going for a lead, you know. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, I knew what I was doing. You know, I wanted to stay alive, you know, there. I didn't want to spin. So, and and it all worked out. I mean, it's, um, you know, it was a race that gave me incredible amount of satisfaction. And, and as you said, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it was probably not a real welcome win because it's the same thing as if one of uh, the, the, the drivers from, you know, and NASCAR drive would come to Indianapolis and win in our own, you know, <laughs> in, in our own sandbox, you know, if you know what I mean. Uh, so, uh, but at the same time, though, I uh, always felt welcome down there, you know, that uh, I remember even from just when I started driving, you know, that 24 hours down there, how uh, um, uh, uh, Bill France uh, Senior always welcomed me and it always made me feel that way. And and as far as racers, you know, it's um, uh, you have to try to gain your respect by, you know, just driving decently and, and, and uh, respecting the other guys. And that's how it works. But, um, but again, you know, I go to NASCAR, you know, the boys that, that I know, it's like visiting, you know, my other family, just like when I go to Formula One, so... 
Now, Mario is only one of two men to win the Daytona 500 and the Indianapolis 500, but the crossover was not entirely uncommon even then. As a matter of fact, his teammate was Freddie Lorenzen, who tested in an Indy car at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Donald Davidson is the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Here's Donald talking about Fred Lorenzen at the world's most famous racetrack at 16th and Georgetown. Uh, how that test came about, I don't, I, I don't know, but it was the fall of 65, and, and Fred Lorenzen at that time was uh, called the Golden Boy, and NASCAR w- was quite a bit different then from what it is now, and uh, the, the full NASCAR schedule would be like, golly, 50, 55 races, and, and yep. sometimes several times a week, and they would do 100 lappers on quarter-mile dirt tracks. Well, Fred Lorenzen uh, from Elmhurst was where he was from, and he'd won the USAC championship twice in 58 and 59, and then he got hooked up with Holman and Moody, which was uh, uh, Ford-backed, I think maybe unofficially, but it was effectively a Ford factory entry. And uh, so what they did was to run, they didn't run the whole circuit. They just ran the big races. And in very short order, Fred Lorenzen, uh, his nickname was the Golden Boy, and he won all of the big races. I mean, they would go to Charlotte and Atlanta and, and Darlington and all of the, what I suppose, they, I don't know if they were really super speedways, but the, the departure from the half-mile and the quarter-mile dirts, Fred Lorenzen basically won them all. And I think there were some years, because he didn't run all the races, and the way the points were, uh, he would maybe 18th, um, and this is hypothetical, he might be 18th in points, but he would be the top money winner because they, they won all the big races. And uh, he visited here several times. And, in fact, I met Fred Lorenzen in my first year in 1964. And he had won the Yankee 300 uh, stock car race. It was a USAC stock car race, but it had a full international license, so there was interchange of drivers. And he'd won that in uh, at the very beginning of May. And uh, by the time... I showed up. It was uh, it, it was probably the first qualifying weekend, or it might even have been the second qualifying weekend. So he'd obviously left and, and come back and was just visiting. And I met him and, and uh, knew who he was, and he was an extremely nice man. Now, I mean, I knew that, that he was polished and everything like that, but he was extremely gracious. And I was rather taken aback because here was this NASCAR big shot who was just a very, very polite and, and just sort of uh, flattered that anybody would even know him. So anyway, uh, whether he had the Indianapolis 500 in the back of his mind, I don't know. Uh, some of them, the, uh, you know, like Bobby Johns had it from the time he was a little boy. And as I mentioned, there were several people ran in the brickyard 400 the first year their ambition had been to run the 500, but, you mm-hmm. know, they, they realized it wasn't going to happen. So, anyway, uh, Fred Lorenzen came down here. Uh, it was a Firestone test, and I think he ran for a couple of days, and I don't know whether he just said, uh, thank you, I've always wanted to do that, but that's, uh, you know, I, I now know what I know, you know, thank you. Uh, but nothing else came of it. I mean, the thinking was, God, that would be great. Fred Lorenzen's going to be an entry in the 66-500, and nothing ever happened after that. So uh, shortly after that, he just retired from racing way too early, and then um, then he made a comeback, and the comeback wasn't that successful, and then he retired a second time, and he still 
was still a relatively young man. So the crossover was not uncommon, and some of those that did exactly that are household names from one form or another. And you heard Donald mention the Yankee 300. Keep that in mind because we might have to revisit that before the end of the show. On this, the Mike Thompson produced episode of Beyond the Bricks returns after this. This year, for the 42nd consecutive time, Firestone tires were on the winning car in the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Jimmy Clark set a new record of over 150 miles an hour, again proving Firestone the greatest tire name in racing. The first seven cars that finished ran on Firestones with no tire change. Only two cars on competitive tires were able to finish. In victory lane, Clark said, I ran on Firestones because I knew I could count on them. They did a wonderful job. Colin Chapman, famous designer, builder, and owner of the car, said, Firestone tires performed great and were not half-worn. Next time you buy tires, for greater safety and longer mileage, get Firestone Nylon 500s. The tires with the same construction features as Firestone race tires. They're speedway proof for your highway safety. Buy on the Unicharge plan at your nearby Firestone dealer or store. Like Mario Andretti, Jim Clark loved his Firestones. That commercial from 1965 featuring the guy that another one that won just about everything. As a matter of fact, Jim Clark has been credited as being the greatest Formula One driver of all time. The Times listed him that in 2009, by the way, and with good reason. His Formula One career, he won a world championship in 1963. Again, in 1965, he had 25 wins, 32 poles. Essentially, if it had four wheels, Firestone tires, presumably, at least from an open-wheel standpoint in Indianapolis, and a cockpit he was going to strap in it was Jim Clark. And, Mike, a lot of people don't realize this, but there are times where he was actually able to get into a car also that had a cover over him because he made a NASCAR start. He did, and that's uh, one of the more fun stories that uh, people don't really really realize, that Jim Clark drove in a NASCAR race, that he, uh, it was in 1967, he had the opportunity to drive uh, at Rockingham, and he, he got behind the wheel and just wanted to try it. He brought Yock and Rent with him, which was kind of fun. And uh, the two of them went to Rockingham, of all places. And, and Clark, I mean, showed really well. I mean, he had gotten all the way up to 12th place by the time the engine blew. And uh, there was a lot of people who believed, actually, one of the reasons that Rint went with him was that Rint actually was going to get in the car and drive a little bit as well, potentially, during the race. And um, the engine blew, and they never had, actually, the opportunity to do that. And so uh, Clark drove until the engine blew about 100, I think it was 140, 150 laps into the race. But, um, you know, Rint was another guy who was actually kind of interested in some of these other forms of motorsports. He never got to get in a NASCAR car and, and drive. But uh, I have actually got a photo of him and Denny Holm at Winchester and uh, Holm sitting in a sprint car. And Rint's kind of looking at him like, I don't know if I want to do that. But, uh, you know, he you, you know he was interested in seeing these type of things. But, uh, you know, Jim Clark for, you know, you know, you can just imagine to have Jim Clark, you know, world champion, Indianapolis 500 winner driving at Rockingham. You know, if that would have happened today. You know, if you had Lewis Hamilton come over and drive at Rockingham uh, or some a track similar to Rockingham, what a story that would be. You know, 
it makes you wonder, Mike, how much when you think about any of these drivers, and this still holds true today, do you believe that the desire for these drivers to get into another car to do something that Jimmy Johnson with IndyCar, for example, and he grew up admiring IndyCar. He grew up in the, the area of Rick Mears, who he looked up to. So you can kind of understand why at the end of his cup career, he decided to give that a try. But how much of it do you think is the desire to test themselves that causes drivers to get into another series and how much of it do you think is simply these are guys especially in that era that were gearheads and just loved the automobile and wanted to be able to embrace as many forms of it as possible yeah i think in clark's case it was a chance to try something else uh you know clark was one of those guys who loved to drive different things and you know i mean we've seen pictures of him in his early career i mean he drove everything you know so i think it was just an opportunity to drive something completely different than he had ever driven before and so the you know ford you know he had an opportunity through ford to do this and and it was like hey i'm gonna you know and he wanted to do it again you know unfortunately you know we lost him early the next year and he never had a chance to do any more nascar races but i think he you know something he enjoyed and he just wanted that opportunity to to drive something different and i think in jimmy johnson's case that's one of the things i love about the fact that jimmy johnson i mean look jimmy johnson's done everything you can do um you know he's he's got the money he's you know he's got a great family he could he could have just hung it up at the end of his nascar career but he's like nope you know, this is what I wanted to do. And and I, I felt the same way a little bit about Dale Earnhardt. We never got to see Dale Earnhardt all the way do what he wanted to do. But, you know, if you recall the week that we lost Dale Earnhardt, he ran in the 24 hours of Daytona with Dale Jr. And there were plans for him to he wanted to run the 24 hour Le Mans with Dale Jr. and do all kinds of other things, you know, post his NASCAR career. And it's just, you know, trying something different. And so, you know, I really admire those guys. Jim Clark, as we had mentioned 1967 was when he decided to get in that cup car, and you had mentioned that he passed away on the 7th of April of 1968. So it was, unfortunately, towards the end of Jim Clark's life. But here is Donald Davidson, his recollections and his narrative on the one Clark, uh, the one start that Jim Clark made in NASCAR. Clark only did the one NASCAR race, I think, and it sounds like we're making it up. But he was a true enthusiast. I don't know how that came about, uh, that particular one. But Clark was somebody that didn't race for the money. He raced because he really enjoyed it. And uh, I mean, I've told people, you know, the, the British Grand Prix, I don't know how things are now, but the British Grand Prix typically, I think there was like six or seven events in the day. <laughs> And uh, they would run a couple of races after to kind of help filter the crowd. And so the Grand Prix might be event number five out of seven on, on the card. Well, the, the reason I bring that up is that Clark and Sterling Moss before him, another pure enthusiast, would run some of the support races. So when Clark was... I was driving in the British Grand Prix. That might be his third event of the day. I mean, who could see that happening now? But uh, anyway, the, uh, I'm, I'm almost sure I've said North Wilkesboro, but I think it was Rockingham. And uh, he drove a Holman and Moody Ford. And I think his teammates were Fred Lorenzen and 
Bobby Allison, I think. I might be wrong on that, but it, it was an all-star team. And uh, Jochen Rint went with them, and uh, that was kind of a surprise because I never thought that Rint was quite the enthusiast, certainly not the, that Clark was, just pure racing enthusiast. And I'm not sure whether they had... Uh, in mind that he would drive a car, but his role was that he would be Clark's relief driver. And I don't remember where Clark started, but I think he got up to like about 12th at one point and then was out with a mechanical problem. So Rint never got to drive and Clark never did it again. But that was um, fall of 66, I believe. And that just uh, his lone NASCAR run. And as we had mentioned, so 66, he passed away on the 7th of April of 1968, did Jim Clark. And interesting that when he was fatally injured in a racing accident, Jim Clark's racing prowess was such that while I don't know that it was ever determined or proven, there was a lot of speculation among his peers that the cause of his racing accident that took his life was actually a rear tire that had gone down and caused him to lose control because the thought of Jim Clark not having control of a car based on his smooth driving ability and his con constant control of cars was simply inconceivable to those that were his peers. Now, those that were his peers that respected him include another driver that had made the transition from Indianapolis 500 to Daytona 500 that also is a man like Mario Andretti that won both. Talking about A.J. Foyt and Supertex, the four-time Indianapolis 500 winner, spoke about his respect for Jim Clark. I would have to say so, and I think to me in my time, he's probably was one of the greatest Formula One drivers. I mean, they've had some great drivers over Schumacher and all them, and uh, but I think Jimmy could run with any of them because. And what I had a lot of respect for him that I was with the factory team, the Ford. Then I watched him get in a factory car, but it wasn't the quality I had, and run a hell of a race and. Uh, with no power steering and all that like they have today down south. So take my hat off to him because I've seen him win, you know, at Milwaukee. And I mean, he's just a great race driver regardless of what you put him in. I would have to say he was probably, in my books, probably the best Formula One driver in my time. Now, Mike, I hate to, any time that we have to add a clarification over Donald, you always feel bad about it, but you double-checked that it was 1967 for Jim Clark, correct? That's correct. Yeah, because it was it was very close to the end of of Jim's life, and and it was it was October of 1967, and he passed away as you mentioned in April of '68. So, you know, to give perspective for all of these drivers about the difficulty, the skill set that it takes, regardless of where exactly they place. I mean, this illuminates to the greatness of Mario Andretti. But I have shared this anecdote on many an occasion, probably to you as well, Mike. But I remember doing a moderating a Q&A with Dario Franchitti at one of the racetracks a few years ago. And it was after Dario had come back from running NASCAR himself when he drove for Chip Ganassi briefly in the cup side of things. And he was asked what it was like to drive a cup car coming from an open-wheel IndyCar. And I'll never forget the way he said it, which was it literally is like going your whole life from driving a Corvette to driving a school bus. So the feel the weight, the maneuverability, all of the things that factor into being a great race car driver and feeling it out. Mike, I can't imagine 
for anybody, no matter how great a driver they are. I think it speaks to the ultimate skill set of some that they can get in and find any acclimation whatsoever because other than the fact that they have pedals and a wheel, there's not a whole lot that some of these cars have in common with one another. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. I agree 100% with that. And and it just, you know, I think in Dario's case, he, I think he would have acclimated had he had more of an opportunity. But, I mean, that, that program went away so quick and he got hurt at Talladega. And, I mean, he, he didn't really get a chance to acclimate. But, I mean, you know, there are some talented guys who it just, you know, it never clicked for them. Um, you know, getting to, to do that, you know, switching over in between the two series. And some guys that did, I mean, Tony Stewart's a great example. I mean, it just shows you, you know, Tony Stewart, you know, went from IndyCar champion to, you know, cup champion, you know, it just, it just shows, uh, you know, Tony Stewart was able to do that. Um, but, but it's for some people, it's just, it, it's just a different beast. And, you know, and then look at Jimmy Johnson again, as a great example, Jimmy Johnson, seven time cup champion hasn't exactly lit the world on fire in IndyCar and he's still learning IndyCar because it is the exact opposite of what he was doing in, in NASCAR. And he's continued to improve and he's gotten better and he's gotten better. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a different, it's a total different skill set than he's, he's ever had to deal with. So it goes the opposite way as well. Indianapolis is the racing capital of the world for a lot of reasons, not just the Indianapolis motor speedway, which seemingly is the majority reason, of course, it says it when you pull in and you see it written on the museum. But in addition to that, Indianapolis is home to other great racing facilities. Sure, you have the Speedrome, Circle City Raceway now racing on dirt right here in the Circle City. But the history of the U.S. Nationals, there's nothing quite like going out on Labor Day and seeing the NHRA drag strip light up, especially on that weekend night before the Labor Day finals in the u.s nationals which is the super bowl of nhra racing and of course it goes without saying indianapolis raceway park which has been home to so many great races whether it be trucks or any number of different cars that have gone out at irp which is the same place of course that that hosts the u.s nationals but stock cars in 1994 came here to run the indianapolis motor speedway but it's not the first time that they ran in the indianapolis area we'll get into that and touch back on something that Donald tipped his hat to at the beginning of the show. We'll take a look at that when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Around here, it's always bumper to bumper. I got to concentrate full time on my driving, so I use the racing version of the STP double oil filter. With a filter and a filter, I know I don't have to worry about the protection my engine's getting. Of course, I don't know what kind of traffic you drive in, but when I go to work, man, it's always rush hour. Get filter in a filter protection for your car. The STP double oil filter. Richard Petty for STP Filters. This is Beyond the Bricks talking about some of those stars that have raced both open wheel cars, stock cars, the crossover, Indianapolis, everything getting underway tomorrow with cup cars and Indy cars on the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike, it was April of 1963. You and I weren't around just yet, but if we were, I guarantee you we would have been over in Claremont for the first annual Yankee 300 because when you're talking about names like Dan Gurney, Parnelli Jones, Roger Penske was there, and of course, A.J. Foyt. A lot of people don't realize that, that stock cars were running on the west side long before Jeff Gordon took the checkered flag in 1994. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Yankee 300, that's just, and it's a really interesting field because the names you just mentioned, I mean, Roger Penske led the race. Uh, there was a really, really young Gary Bettenhausen in that race. I mean, I think Gary Bettenhausen was 22 maybe at the time, and he's in that race. Uh, you know, Parnelli Jones, Troy Rutman, Eddie Sachs. I mean, I definitely would have been there for that one. And Donald Davidson talked about exactly that. The Yankee 300 stock car race, which began in the 60s at Indianapolis Raceway Park. In 1963, in the early part of May, uh, there was a, a stock car race there. It was USAC sanctioned, but it carried a full international listing, which meant that... Um, that uh, NASCAR drivers could compete, or actually FCCA guys if they wanted to. And uh, so the first one, uh, Fireball Roberts, uh, no, um, did he? Yeah, Fireball Roberts uh, won the pole, but the race was won by A.J. Foyt, and Lloyd Ruby was second. And uh, the on the, uh, the uh, Foyt drove for Ray Nichols. Nichols Engineering had three cars. And it was Foyt and Paul Goldsmith and Roger Penske drove a stock car at Raceway Park on the road course and led the race. And then in 64, um, uh, Fred Lorenzen won it and Parnelli was second. And then let's see, 60, I, I think Parnelli won it in 67 and Mario was second. So they had all-star fields out there. And... Uh, uh, the, the the Bill Strop Mercury team in 64, 63 or 64, I'm hazy on this now. Listen to this for a four-car lineup, four-driver lineup. They had Parnelli Jones, Roger Ward, Dan Gurney, and Troy Rutman. And they all dropped out. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the thing took forever to run. And it was decided to cut it back to 250. And then um, it, in 1972, they moved the date. They took it off the beginning of May and moved it to uh, in July. It was like the week before Pocono. And it was hotter than blazes, and there were no people out there. And it was a shame because it was a great show. Anyway, they were uh, all-star fields and... Uh, uh, oh, Darrell Derringer was another one who was a NASCAR guy, but he was from Indianapolis. He used to run the Speedrome and the West 16th Street Speedway across the way. And uh, he drove uh, actually also for, for Strop. And uh, he was third, I think it was in 64. I think I've got this right. Fred Lorenzen won it. Parnelli Jones was second, and Daryl Derringer was third. But uh, anyway, they were, they were. Uh, I've, I've got uh, some programs from those days, and it's fun to go through and look at the ads and and uh, see the you know the gas stations that were in Claremont that were advertising, and the the different restaurants that are, are no longer in business, and the fast food places, and the motels that would advertise. I wonder if one of those restaurants was our fella that has all the strawberries, Mike. I hope so, because <laughs> he probably would have sold a lot of strawberries around the Yankee 300 time. That's right. Um, as I'd mentioned, there has been so many great races, so many great events uh, in terms of the drivers that have come through here, come through Indianapolis. It's the racing capital of the world for so many reasons, and that's because so many drivers of so many disciplines have wanted to run here in various capacities. And cool to look back on... Indianapolis Raceway Park's contribution 
to that as well. Again tomorrow, want to recap this. Gates opening at 8.30 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The Gallagher Grand Prix practice gets underway from 9.30 to 11. That is the IndyCar practice for 90 minutes. You can hear it on IndyCar Radio, on Sirius XM, and you can see it on Peacock. Then the Gallagher Grand Prix qualifying, that's the IndyCar qualifying, is from 1 until 2.15. There are tickets available, by the way, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway tomorrow. The Pennzoil 150 practice, that's the Xfinity practice, is from 3.05 until 3.35. Autograph session for IndyCar from 3.30 until 4.30, and then Xfinity qualifications get underway from 3.35 until 4.30. Last 30 seconds, Mike, are you going to be out here over the course of the weekend? I will be on the radio with the folks, but I will be live from Columbus, Ohio. I will so certainly... I unfortunately will not be able to make it, but I will be listening to you all you guys. I'll be listening to you and Mark and, and all the team all weekend. Well, very much appreciated. We look forward to it, and I will join you on the way out of the race. On the way out tonight, we're going to leave you with Richard Petty, and I'm doing it for a reason, and that is because I've got to still possibly do radio tomorrow. And just in case the sound of this makes me fall over, there you go. Enjoy Richard Petty singing. Trailer for sailor in rooms to live in peace and 